Friends, Steve Weens here. Welcome to This Good Word. I'm with Wynn Collier today. And we're talking about his brand new book, which is called Burning in My Bones. It's the first authorized biography of Eugene Peterson, pastor, author of The Message, and many, many other books. Huge influence in my life. I was able to visit with Eugene and Jan in Montana a few years ago before they died. And it was one of those pivotal moments in my life. This conversation is an important one. However, I have to say I felt so scattered. Wynn was very gracious. I <laughs> uh, recorded it during the week after Dante Wright was shot and murdered, and I felt extremely up in the air. But we had a great conversation nonetheless. You might hear some banging and rattling in the background. Wynn was having some work done on his house. <laughs> but that's all good because that is real life in the pandemic. Uh, enjoy this conversation, and then please consider buying this book and learning about the life of Eugene Peterson. It's called Burning in My Bones by Wynn Collier. Enjoy. I'm here with Wynn Collier. Wynn, it's so good to see your face, and, and I'm so glad that we are going to take some time to talk about one of my favorite people, <laughs> Eugene Peterson. So welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Good to talk to you, Steve. I read your book, uh, Love Big Be Well, uh, which was just so gorgeous, and it it helped me at a time where I needed a, another small church pastor to pastor me from afar. And so your, your book did that. And it's, it was just, you know, uh, so brilliantly conceived these letters, you know, from a pastor to a congregation. So whew, that. thanks for that. Yeah. And that was probably three or four years ago already, but, um, thanks for staying connected. So, uh, you, you wrote burning in my bones, which is the authorized biography of Eugene Peterson. And I realized, I don't even know the answer to this question, but like, what, 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 walk us through the process of how that project landed on your desk and how you yeah. said, yes, I would have been terrified, man. Yeah. Well, I was, I was a little ignorant and stupid because I actually asked to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I'd been connected to Eugene for probably 12 to 15 years. He'd been a pastor to me. And in 2016, I was visiting he and Jan at their home in Montana. Assuming that would be the last time I would see him. He was definitely drawing the circle in close. And, and I, on the flight back, began to think about his life and what it meant to me and, and how someone was going to write his story. And I love biographies, mm -hmm. and I've also encountered some bad biographies. And I thought, um, how important, because Eugene just has such a, a unique kind of nuanced, um, easy to miss if you're not really paying attention to ways that he thinks and lives in the world. And, and I started thinking, I, I really hope that whoever writes his story really gets him like yeah. doesn't just know the facts or hasn't just read the books but but like f has felt the um 
the encounter of Eugene and can communicate that. And uh, one of our mutual friends, John Blaze, yeah. um, encouraged me, said, like, you should you should tell Eugene. I knew Eugene was not interested in a biography. Um, mm -hmm. He sort of kicking and screaming wrote his his pastoral memoir. Um, but I thought he's like, yeah, I, I know he, he he's not interested in it, but you, you'll be sad if you didn't at least tell him what you're thinking. And I thought, yeah, yeah. that's right. And so I wrote him a letter a couple of weeks later. He wrote, he called me. He said, you know, let's talk about this. I think he was mostly being kind. Um, we talked for 10 minutes and I said, you know, Eugene, does this make you tired or does this give you energy? And he said, when yeah. it makes me tired. <laughs> yeah. And so I thought that would be the end of it. For some reason, we kept talking about 10 minutes later. He said, when I think I have energy now. I think you're supposed to do this. Wow. I'm going to, I'm going to help you. Um, so we did, you know, neither one of us really knew what we were doing. Um, authorized in this case just meant he said, sure. And then he opened up his life. He never once asked for any kind of veto power over anything. I would say he never held anything back. I mean, he, he may have held things back, but there were things I didn't know he was holding back. Um, yeah, yeah. He just opened his life um, with the same kind of non-anxious uh, presence that I'd always known him to have. Um, he didn't seem defensive about anything, even his failings. It was it was mm. a beautiful, beautiful process. How did you meet him and get connected to him in the first place? You know, really, it was just through letters. Uh, my mm. first book, uh, the edit, one of the editors at the publishing house had edited Eugene. I got him to give me Eugene's address. I, I probably thought I was kind of unique in that I was writing him letters. You know, years later, I would literally have thousands of letters in my basement and realize how many people were writing him. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't feel unique anymore. But uh, I met him in Juneau, Alaska for... He was he and his son Eric were speaking at a small Presbyterian church's um, spiritual life weekend. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really like church conferences, and uh, but the idea of going to Alaska to be in this little church that was having this little thing for their own church with Eugene sounded wonderful. So I had a friend who went to church there and stayed at their place, and then. Um, yeah, mostly mostly was letters and until after that last meeting and once we decided to do this and and then I just spent lots of time in their home and with them and with their friends and their family and mm. yeah. for people that don't even know who he is or maybe know very little about him, how do you describe him to people who maybe haven't heard? Uh, of him. And I know you, I mean, you wrote a long book about it, so maybe it's hard yeah. to describe it in a few sentences, but, but give us a, just the thumbnail sketch of, of this guy and, 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 and why he has so influenced you. I don't know. I, I hope, I, I assume, and I hope that most of us have had one or two encounters with people in our life that it's just, it, it's not something that we can describe very well. It's something that, that we just, feel in their presence. Um, yeah. Eugene had, um, when you were around him, I'll say this, 
you found yourself enveloped in another world hmm. that you didn't quite know existed, but you always hoped existed. And, and that world felt more true mm. than the world you normally lived in because it wasn't separated in any way from this world. Everything was deepened. So you felt more human. You felt more in touch with God. You felt more awakened to the world around you. It was very hard to be anxious in his presence. Huh. Because there was such depth of peacefulness around him. So as as many people talk about, I mean, he the man loved silence. And when you're in a conversation with him, he felt no compulsion whatsoever to carry the conversation. Hmm. And some people might think, well, that that was off-putting or removed it you know and I, I think some people may have encountered that way but it if you're there long enough like it really didn't feel that way it just felt like oh this is actually the way humans can be together like where we don't yeah. have to like we can actually sit and reflect and if there's something to say we'll say it but we don't have to make conversation in order to feel comfortable mm. um so you know you might be in a conversation with eugene and you'd ask him a question and he'd have a one sentence answer because that's all he had to say. You know, he wasn't yeah. trying to be coy. It's just like, that's all he had to say. And then you'd sit there and early on, you know, my instinct would be like, oh, okay. You know, be thinking really hard. Like, how do I make, how do I come up with the next question? Mm -hmm. um, but then after time, I would find myself enveloped in his world where wow. silence was a gift and a grace and it didn't feel odd it felt like the most natural thing in the world. So I remember sitting in his, in his study filled with windows, looking out at the bay and he'd be in his rocking chair with his little Afghan that he loved. And I'd sit in another chair. I would just be looking out the window and we just sit there for a while, just watching the birds, mm. watching the lake, looking at the mountains. And then when some question or some thought would emerge, one of us would speak it. And we receive it from one another. And then the silence would return. And somehow, even in that conversation, there was a kind of restfulness and um, goodness that I felt like I didn't even know how to understand, but I was just being invited into. And their mm -hmm. home was just like that. Yeah. You know, I had the huge privilege of, of going there and meeting with Eugene and Jan and I can't remember if it was 2016 or 17, but you're right. I mean, that office, that lake, that house and Jan, you know, I would oh, yeah. say there is no Eugene without Jan, it seems like. And that comes through really strongly in your book and, and his book, too. She was kind of flirty and funny. And that's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, um, I'll tell you a little story about that. Um, cause I don't, I, maybe this was in the book, the picture, there's a picture, uh, um, one of the ones with Bono. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if you remember a picture where there's one with, with, uh, Jan and she's kind of looking over at him kind of smirky. 
Do you remember yeah, that yeah. picture, Bunny? Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, for the longest time, I thought she was flirting with him in that at that moment because yeah. that's what she would do. And yeah, yeah. And she loved Bono. And um, <laughs> but I, I found out later for the photographer that actually, um, Bono was in some pain that day, and uh, um, and the photographer was trying to get Bono to smile. And yeah. uh, and he goes like, "Can you smile?" And Bono kind of made some little crack, like, you know, I don't know, like a little short, like I don't know, or something like that. And she kind of was looking over him, more mom like, like reproving him. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. So, so if somebody grabs the book, definitely turn to the middle section and look up that picture. To check that out, yeah. Well, in the the video that was produced, um, she does a funny thing. He's leaving. And he's running up the steps and she says, don't run. Oh, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Do you she remember so, that? She was so motherly. Yes. So talk about Jan a little. Well, you just did. But what was their relationship like um, from your perspective, Eugene and Jan? Because they really had a shared sense of life together in in ministry, uh, that comes through real clear. Like, what was your, what did you see there? And how was that cultivated? Yeah, I mean, there was just deep love. I mean, you you picked up on that when you, yeah, were, yeah. when you were there. I mean, and I do think she, she made things happen that he couldn't have made happen. I, I'm assuming you, you felt just the kind of hospitality that she created in that space and um i'm sure she wanted to say hello to you too and greet you when you were there and oh yeah and, yeah um you know eugene was very very interior and yeah. i think left to himself he could have just <laughs> really removed from people um and she she would not allow that to happen yeah I do think at times she felt overshadowed by him um, yeah. because everybody would come to see Eugene. Everyone wrote to mm -hmm. Eugene, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a moment where she was actually at the Lutheran Bible camp, which is neighbors to their property, and uh, she and Eugene were there, and they were sitting on a pew in the chapel, and I think Eugene was sitting between them, and this pastor leaned forward and sort of talked past Eugene to talk to Jan, was asking mm. her some questions. And that, she never forgot that experience. Mm. Because mm. I felt like it was one of those few times where she felt like somebody was bypassing Eugene to talk yeah. to her. Wow. Um, so that was a beautiful part of when she was in Regent, though. Um, all these students flocked to Jan and mm -hmm. wanted Jan for Jan's sake. Um, mm -hmm. But Eugene would always say, I'm not in any way who I am without Jan. Yeah. Um, they they were truly a team um, in many regards. I mean, she she helped with some of his books and she was the um, the hospitality person and and she was the one who helped him stay grounded. So when I was there, I just remember Jan finishing a lot of his sentences you know he would stumble over something or he would forget a little bit whether it be 
a book that he wrote years ago or a memory of their kids. And was that what it like? Was that what it was like all the time? Like she just she was like they were almost they were so connected mentally and emotionally that in ways that are even go way beyond most couples, she knew exactly what he was going to say if he sort of stumbled. Yeah, there definitely was a lot of that. Um, a lot of times when when I was with him for interviews and stuff, she wouldn't be in the room, but but. I do remember a few times where I, we were up in his study and she was down in the, what they called the great room or the family room. And I think she must've been <laughs> listening. She was so curious. Cause I remember once or twice him forgetting something and she would like call up, you know, no, yeah. no Jane, it was you know some, some name or some date or something. And I'm like, Oh man, I didn't even realize you were listening. That's funny. Yeah. Um, I mean, the one thing she would say, it was funny, but I do think there was there was there was some pain there too. Um, mm-hmm. She was so um, outgoing. Yeah, he was oh, so yeah. interior. Yeah, you know, a lot of times she would say things like, "I love the boy," and she'd pat him on his knee. But I sure wish he'd talk more. Yeah, um, yeah. I think she wanted more feedback, more uh, conversation, and I think he tried, but it was. That wasn't always easy for him. Yeah. It, well, in, you know, I went there with three or four other guys. And one of the things I was surprised about is that, like, when we got there, it was, I expected them to be kind of, you know, polite, but like roll their eyes. Oh, we have to do this a lot. You know, we entertain people a lot, have people at our house a lot. But, what I and maybe I got a little of that from Eugene, maybe a little bit, but from Jan, it was like she was energized. You know, it was like I I was surprised. It seemed like she was happy we were there. You know, like this male energy that sort of filled the house. Um, that I'm was sure surprising was. to me. That was surprising yeah. to me. Yeah, I'm sure she, she was. And she would, you know, she would even say, kind of laughing. She's like, "I love men," you know. Oh yeah. Oh I yeah. I love to be around men. <laughs> And that was really obvious and clear and sweet. And, you know, I say flirty. She was. I mean, she was like, like at times I was like, it, you know, was she just flirting with me or whatever? And it's just funny that she kind of was. And that that was um, part of her warmth. I, I just, yeah, her in that house with the cookies and and her smile and her laughter and the way she would make fun of him at times. Not make fun, but like just like what you just said yeah. was so endearing. Um, well, you were a pastor for was it 25 years when before you transitioned to this new role? Um, how do you what what are a couple of ways that Eugene's way influenced your pastoring? If it did, I assume it did. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Just trying to think. It's almost more like what ways did he not influence it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I will have to say just to sort of like, I fundamentally still understand myself as a pastor, just in a different yeah. lo- lo- location and different way. Um, yeah. I think it's something that's so deep and maybe that's partly why I was so drawn to him is it wasn't, and you know this, but just, it wasn't, it wasn't work I do. It was who I am. And, and I think he just gave dignity to 
this um, strange, mysterious, very concrete calling of mm -hmm. loving people, refusing to use people, mm -hmm. um, really having this deep confidence that the Jesus who comes alive and is alive in the scriptures is active in the church and and that my job is not to make anything happen but to be a witness mm -hmm. um it felt so contrary to most of the pastoral energy uh, that i that i found myself around um so much anxiety or ambition which i think is mm -hmm. actually another face of anxiety oh um, interesting um and so i i think he he gave me a picture to not of not like being like eugene like personality wise i'm very different from eugene but the storyline the mm -hmm. the the courage to resist the dehumanizing energies that do a lot of god talk without god really being at the heart of it and i think at the end you know at the end of the day i i just longed like the reason i was a pastor was because i really believed i really believe in god mm -hmm. <laughs> like i really believe that that this is the center story of the human experience and that all of our hopes and longings and fears are somehow healed mm. as we become more and more drawn into the life of God. And that's why I wanted to be a pastor. Mm. And I felt like, you know, a lot of places where I was, a lot of things I would read, they would sort of give deferential head nod to that sort of thing. But it seemed like the real energy was around everything else. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I kept wanting the energy to be about that and yeah. about god and um i think eugene gave me the courage to say it's possible and i remember when he died i um you know some of the sorrow is the mere fact that he wasn't present in this crazy world anymore like mm -hmm. just knowing that there was someone like eugene who was living his life in the midst of this world um gave me some some confidence that it's possible yeah oh i resonate with that when i grew up as a pastor i i grew up as a pastor in the very ambitious going to conferences and and feeling that energy and really participating in that for a while you know i really that that was kind of who i was for a while like you know, I, I just remember sitting in those seats of those big auditoriums and just breathing in the air of ambition and getting fueled by it. Yeah. But then the inevitable crash of comparison where you look at your own thing, which looked so puny and pathetic by comparison of this gleaming, glistening machine that I was just nursing from for three days and i think eugene you know my experience of him as a writer 
when I would read him, it's like he had endless patience except for that shit, you know, mm-hmm. like <laughs> he spoke out against that stuff um, in some pretty intense ways, like the marketing of church, the industrializing of congregations. It's like he really saw that as, well, how would you say that he saw that? I, um, that whole movement that I just sort of described. Yeah. You know, um, it did, it did often strike me how you kind of alluded to it, how nuanced he would be with everything. Yeah. Um, and he just wasn't nuanced on this one. <laughs> um, and it's in some ways at times it may have been a short, it may have been a, at the same time, if he was ever in a conversation with a particular pastor, he wouldn't go that route. He, sure. Sure. It was when it was in sort of like abstract, um, yeah. which he didn't like abstracts anyway, but that might, might, may have been why he went that route. But I, I think, um, to him, it, it all comes back to his, his conversations around ways and means. Mm-hmm. that you can't simply it is a modern deception that we can separate final ends from the ways we get to those ends and he would say we're we are riddled with the lie that um that the ways we get to something that we value is mostly neutral and he yeah. says it's just not it's not neutral yeah. um so where other people would say, hey, we would just want to see souls come to Christ. So, you know, the old adage would be anything that's not sinful, you know, we should do it. And he would say, well, that's that's a horrible, um, you know, yeah, that's a very low bar um, because the way you do something itself shapes the end. Mm-hmm. And so to assume that merely having more people in the pews is um is the end goal is to completely miss what jesus is actually doing in the world in creating individual people who are formed to be more loving uh, more aware i mean you can't run people through a, a pipeline and expect them to then at the end have the kind of maturity and awareness that can sit with an individual person in an individual story and and because they haven't they haven't felt that themselves right um, so i think at the end of the day he would never say well that's not true he would never say in his better moments he wouldn't say uh, a large church isn't a church a mega church isn't a church but he would say it is very, very hard to be a true pastor in that environment. Yeah. Not impossible, but it's really hard because most of um, most everything else that's happening is working against what mm-hmm. you're trying to be and do. And that's mm-hmm. why he would say, you know, in the church world, we've done a really good job at naming addictions to substances We've done a really good job at naming addictions to sex, but we have absolutely failed to name the addiction to the crowd. Mm. Oof. Yeah, I, he, he, right on the money. And I just, I'm an Enneagram three 
you know, so again, I can really go there in lots of different flavors and ways, you know, without knowing it, you know, Mm -hmm. addicted to achievement. And, um, one of the things he said when I was in that little house, I think I asked him something like, what would you say to pastors these days? And he just, without even stopping to think, which probably was not, but he, he just said, their lack of patience is going to kill them. Uh, so when, as pastors try to navigate life after the pandemic, which the people I talk to just don't know what the future will, will be. I don't. And there's some anxiety there. Um, what do you think? What would you and or Eugene say to us in this moment in time? Well, I, it seems to me there's at least a possibility that the evil of this pandemic could yield some really good fruit. Mm. Um, if it might finally strip us of the the destructive idea that we control what happens in our churches, <laughs> that we can you know, that we can model our way out of this, Mm. that we can come up with the right image or metaphor or um, new paradigm or plan, which I I think there's going to be a ton of energy that goes into that sort of thing, because that's the old way. Yeah. The old way is whatever crisis comes, that we can maneuver our way out of it. I think most of us have had enough seminary so that we wouldn't put this answer on a test, but in the depths of our heart with the anxieties we carry uh, to bed at night or as we wake on Sunday morning, most of us functionally believe as if we are the ones who ultimately control what happens in our churches. <laughs> I mean, of course, it's God. Yes, yes, we know, we know, we know. Yeah. But our anxieties tell us it's. we really think it's us. Mm-hmm. And if, if we could return and have the, the the courage to return, perhaps because we just simply don't know what else to do, to the most basic things of of loving those people who call us pastor, mm. seeing their faces, mm. hearing the stories of their their fears and their addictions and their um, hopes and their longings, and helping them learn how to love their neighbor and help them learn how deeply they are loved by God. And if we could simply return to what it means to feast on Christ in the Eucharist and Mm. to remember our baptism Mm. and let all the other stuff die Mm. um, so that we might be the living church of God. Um, I don't, I mean, what else, what better thing? Yeah. Um, so I, I wonder, I think the question before a lot of us as pastors is, are we going to try to return to the old tools and systems mm. that we never should have trusted to begin with? Yeah. I think we have an opportunity to name that for the lie it was and and to move into the dream God has for us. Or we might just double down on the old thing and... um I sure hope we don't. Yeah.
Well, as you're speaking, those words seem deeply, deeply true and hopeful, actually, for me. Like, I feel so tired when I think about trying to figure it out, you know, trying to come up with the new model. Um, and but when you say feasting on the Eucharist, remembering um, our baptisms, loving our people. I mean, that gives me some energy and some hope, you know, so thank you for that win. That's very, very hopeful. Um, thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I've appreciated this conversation so much, man. And um, uh, where do you tell people to buy to buy this book burning in my bones? If they yeah. haven't bought it yet? Yeah. I mean, you can buy it anywhere you buy your books. Um, certainly, if you have a local bookseller, snag it there. If you want to support a local bookseller that you don't have access to, Hearts and Minds um, bookseller in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, um, can, can ship it to you. Um, links to the, these places are on my website, whencollier.com. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I ordered my book uh, from Hearts and Minds, and Byron is so sweet sent me a little note yeah. you know it was so he's great. great you know it's it's so fun like you know it's like you you go on there and you actually have to type type in like on an order form like you don't just click on it like a shopping cart you, you say i want That's this right. book or and i loved that process actually it felt so old and sweet and non-efficient you know and um, right anyway i love i loved it so and they were so helpful and um and then how about when I assume wincollier.com, they can find your books and your stuff to win. Is there any anything else you're kind of dreaming about or working on that you want to let people know about? Sure. Yeah. So we we moved in August to Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. And I'm um, helping to form and direct the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination. And we're hoping to have circles of conversation for to continue a lot of the kinds of conversations Eugene was having and looking to some future um, future things that we hope to host. And we have a doctor of ministry program that we're helping to, to launch. So if people would like information around any of that, they can go to the petersoncenter.org. The petersoncenter.org. Okay. That's right. Uh, well, thanks, Wynn. This was a breath of fresh air for my soul and the, the edited conversation will seem seamless, but <laughs> we actually had some technological <laughs> difficulties that we had, yeah. we had to sort of had to muscle through. So thanks for your patience in that. And, um, and for even being with me in my scattered state of mind right now, I really appreciate your grace. Oh, I'm glad to do it. Thanks, Wayne. Yeah. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. 
And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.